You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 7. This lecture will consider Chapter 2 of Veritatis Splendor, a chapter entitled, Do Not Be Conformed to This World. That, of course, is a quotation from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. And it talks about the way in which we must, in our thinking, be properly inoculated so as not simply to fall victim to some of the popular trends of our age. Especially for the chattering class, there is a tendency to want to be admired by other members of the chattering class, and hence to say the things that will be pleasing to them. Whereas what John Paul II is so mindful of is that we need to be followers of Christ. He has quoted Augustine a number of times, and I, I can't help but think of the, the wonderful work that Augustine does in his book, The City of God. At least the way in which I read that book uh, is that he is trying to understand, after the first ten books in which he has completed his critique of the thesis that Rome fell because it was somehow given over its allegiance to the Christian deity rather than to the old Roman deities. Then in the remaining 12 books, numbers 11 through 22, what Augustine is trying to do is to suggest that the relations between the earthly city and the city of God are probably envisioned in the ideal order as a pair of cupped hands, namely that the earthly city is a lower level of loyalty, but that the higher loyalty that we have is to the heavenly city, and that when the earthly city is well organized, it will support the work of the heavenly city, but that there's no guarantee that it will do so, and there could even be something highly antithetical between the heavenly city and the earthly city if the earthly city is badly ordered. There is constantly a temptation in every age by even some of those most involved in the life of religion to want to be like to their peers. One thinks, for instance, of the way in which that's reflected in some of the late books of the Old Testament, the book of Sirach, for instance, presumably composed in Hebrew, but then translated into Greek by the grandson of the author, so that it would be available to the young Jews who were there in such great cities as Alexandria, so that they would hear the wisdom of their culture, translating it into their own language, and yet preserving these timeless truths which had been given by Revelation. Some people thought, of course, that there was no Hebrew text, but about a century ago, they actually found the Hebrew, or at least much of the Hebrew text of Sirach, and gives us a sense of what it is that was involved in this effort to resist the affections, to resist the allurements of the world. Pope John Paul II is mindful of that, and so he chooses as the title for chapter 2, Do Not Be Conformed to This World. Now that title is a little bit um, aggressive, but on the other hand, it's not that he is in any way hostile to everything in the modern world. He loved his world, and he loved so many of its trends. In fact, here near the beginning of chapter 2, he will recapitulate his own sense of what some of its best movements were in culture, in art, in philosophy. And yet, he wants to keep us mindful of where our higher loyalties are. And in this respect, he seems to me to resemble Augustine in the doctrine of the two cities. What I would like to do in this and the next three lectures, so here I'm talking about lectures 7, 8, 9, and 10, is I would like to cover the first two sections of chapter 2. Chapter 2 as a whole 
looking at this notion of do not be conformed to the world, we'll identify four major erroneous trends in contemporary theology. That is, trends which the Pope has noticed of ways in which moral theology was tending to conform to this world and to some of its wayward tendencies. He was spotting these ways in which even moral theology was affected by a kind of worldliness. So in all four of those cases, that is, his considerations about um, freedom and law, excuse me, freedom and truth, and then about conscience and law, and then his great concern about fundamental option, and finally his concern about teleology, he is going to be very, very vigorous in trying to counter those trends. And yet he can do so in a way that is appreciative of the best elements of modern culture. It's concern with freedom. It's concern with the demands and the rights of conscience. It's tremendous concern with having inspiration and zeal, having a holistic point of view or a fundamental option. And it's concern with consequences and conditions and resolving as much as one can. So in each of these, it's not that he is simply opposed to the modern or to the contemporary. What he is opposed to is an erroneous trend. What I would like to do is to spend three of these lectures, number seven, eight, and nine, especially focusing on just the first section. It is so rich and complex. And in the course of it, invariably, we will be making some comments about conscience, even when we discuss the topic of freedom. And then I'll reserve one whole lecture, number 10, to the topic of conscience, that is the second section. And then we'll go on to the final two. But right now, let's begin a, a detailed account of what it is that he has to say. In paragraph 28 of Veritatis Splendor, he quotes a line for us from the second letter of Paul to Titus, namely, excuse me, the second chapter of Paul's letter to Titus, teaching what befits sound doctrine. That is, he is mindful of the need for us to hand on from one generation to another in a proper and holy tradition, and yet in a way that really does speak to a new age, what is sound doctrine. Hence the need for this great attentiveness to Scripture, attentiveness to Old Testament and to New, and to see the great oneness, the kind of unity that we were talking about in the last lecture when we were considering those non-negotiable principles of a Christian interpretation of the Scriptures. And so what he does is to summarize for us some of the main points that he has been able to bring out about the reconciliation of Old Testament and New, and these timeless truths which he sees so much of in his story of the rich young man. Namely, in thinking about the relations between Old Testament and New, first point that he likes to emphasize, and we do well to dwell on it for just a minute, is the way in which the human being must be subordinate to God, for God alone is the one who is good. I think in mentioning that as the first of the important theses that he worked out in the course of chapter one, he is very alert at a very, very profound level to the Promethean tendencies in modern culture. As you remember from Greek mythology, Prometheus was the one who brought fire from the gods to mortals, and in doing so, tried to make them virtually into gods. And so he stands within Greek mythology and Greek philosophical reflection for the effort of man to be his own kind of god. The Pope is deeply alert to those Promethean elements of culture, and in particular alert to the way in which it became thematic in the course of 20th century intellectual traditions. 
in the course of the 19th century leading into the 20th, one had a strong sense of the way in which some of the writers of the 19th and 20th centuries wanted to say the only God for man is man. And whether it be the uh, explicit statements of that or the way in which a Nietzsche or Marx took it to heart and adopting these particular sentiments tried a hermeneutics of suspicion, trying to cast doubt on the way in which religion taught about the need of God's holiness and God's goodness. And those suspicions, whether it be Marx's way of casting a hermeneutics of suspicion, accusing religion of being the opium of the masses, or Freud's techniques for the undermining of thought about love and sex and marriage by suggesting the church had something to hide and pretending that the only proper hermeneutics would be a hermeneutics of the church's suspicions, or far more deeply Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, in a way, is the great author of the various uh, hermeneutics of suspicion, wanting to say that there is no such thing as truth, all there is is power, and that what the Übermensch stands for in Nietzsche is the one who is willing to assert his own power against the conventions that unite the masses and that is aided and abetted by religion. Now, those three great masters of suspicion, as uh, they are sometimes called, Freud and Marx and Nietzsche, they were, in ways, the German wolves, whom our German shepherd, Benedict XVI, directly countered in the first of his encyclicals, God is Love. I think one can read the entirety of Deus Caritas Est as this German shepherd guarding us against those German wolves. But of course, that German shepherd, Benedict XVI, as Joseph Ratzinger, was enormously helpful to John Paul II, and I suspect worked very carefully together on this document that we are studying, Veritatis Splendor. And so part of what John Paul II is reviewing for us in paragraph 28 is the important theme that we must realize that there really is the goodness of God and that he alone is the source of all goodness, he alone is the source of all true value, and that we are very, danger very dangerously and gravely uh, in trouble if we yield and suspect that man is superior to God in the ways that those German wolves tend to suspect. A second theme that John Paul II brings out is the relation between the moral good of human acts and eternal life. When one thinks of what eternal life will consist in, it will be reveling in the goodness of God. Heaven is often called a great banquet, and in thinking of it as the banquet with God, we will enjoy the fruits of indeed our life with him. We will enjoy God and look to God more and more in the beatific vision. And yet, to be prepared for that is precisely the point. And so John Paul II likes to bring out the way in which living the commandments and truly undertaking for ourselves the moral life will be the preparation for eternal life. I think at one point here of Cardinal Newman who quipped at one point, you know, heaven and hell are likely to strike people in the afterlife as the same place. It's kind of like being in church. Some will love it and some will hate it. I think what he was meaning by that suggestion was, we indeed need to be prepared for heaven by coming to love what God loves and seeing this deep and profound connection. The third of the points that John Paul II reviews is the nature of Christian discipleship. Like that rich young man whom he has been talking to and inviting to come higher, 
inviting to grow into the Beatitudes and to begin with the first one of the poverty that he must voluntarily embrace, Christian discipleship opens up for him and opens up for us the perspective on what perfect love is, a love that is really self-giving, a love that is really truly total and cheerful. Finally, John Paul II brings up a fourth point that he has been stressing and that we covered in the last lecture, namely the way in which the gifts of the Holy Spirit are the very source of moral life for us in the new creation. We were talking about it especially in lecture six when we were thinking about the gifts of the Spirit that come with the spiritual senses of scripture giving us an understanding of what the real meaning of Christ's directives to us is, and giving us the means to accept it. When we think, for instance, about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, as Jesus calls him in the 14th and 15th chapters of St. John, it is not just that he has the truth in some propositional sense, but that he is the spirit in which truth is embodied, and that by allowing him to become the dweller in the temple of our soul through baptism and in the Christian life, he will give us how to understand those things, and how to embrace them, and how to live them, and how to love them. So John Paul II pulls these together by means of his own summary of what he was doing in the first chapter. He starts in on the new material then at Veritatis Splendor chapter 29, thinking of the role of revelation as what communicates sound moral knowledge. He is also alert to what the demands of reason are and how reason makes a contribution to moral knowledge. And I think that chapter 2 will strike you as fairly philosophical also theological in a technical sense. He always stays close to the lip of Scripture. He always wants to see the unity of it and truly to understand deeply what Revelation is teaching us. But he is also so mindful of the ways in which we Catholic Christians join together the two wings and are intent upon seeing the, the contributions of reason as well as the contributions of Revelation. He does this in chapter 2 by turning our attention now to the problem about how reason tries to interpret the scriptures, because sometimes the interpretation of the scriptures is highly rationalistic in the ways in which sometimes scripture is taught in contemporary theology. One gets the impression that one may suppress parts of scripture which don't fit with my own rationalistic categories. And what he wants to insist instead is that there is a deep and profound harmony, that reason will be very much enlightened by the illuminations that come from faith and from revelation, but that there is good, solid, hard thinking that can and must be done by reason itself. In paragraph 30, he starts to list some of the particular concerns that motivate him to write this second chapter, namely the tendencies within contemporary theology that have been especially prominent, some of them in the nature of error, some in the nature of ambiguity, some simply in the nature of neglect. Here I'd like to offer a personal observation because I agree so strongly with what he's saying in Veritatis Splendor. When one thinks about the years since the Second Vatican Council, there is such a wide range of opinion. Some want to see that there's a radical rupture between Vatican II and pre-Vatican II, and they would take us back to the pre-Vatican II days and do so in a way that I think would regard Vatican II itself as illegitimate. 
On the other hand, at the very other extreme, one has another hermeneutics of rupture. Those who think that Vatican II finally liberated us from all the stuff that came before and that we can now head off in a different direction. Neither Pope John Paul II, not Pope Benedict XVI, I think not you and I, should buy into either of those hermeneutics of rupture and instead embrace what John Paul II and Benedict XVI were so intent upon teaching this hermeneutics of continuity, that there are things that can be new in disciplinary matters for our current age, but that there has to be a profound appreciation for what come before and a sense that we dare not yield on any of the points that tradition has handed on to us as the timeless truths that God has revealed. We cannot submit revelation to rationalist categories of our own devising. He likes to quote at this point in paragraph number 30, the document that deals with the relations between Christians and Jews, the document Nostra Aetate, that document not only dealt with Christians and Jews, but also Christians and non-Christian religions. And what he does here is to take note of the way in which the Second Vatican Council, in its continuity with the Church's perennial concerns, raised the perennial questions, the questions, the same questions, that motivate him here in Veritatis Splendor. What is the human being? What is the person? What is the meaning and purpose of life? What is good and what is sin? What are the origin and what are the purpose of the sufferings we have? How are we to attain happiness? What, after all, are death, judgment, retribution after death? What is the goal of all this and what is its origin? And then he adds other questions that he perceives when reading the signs of the times. What exactly is the role of conscience in the course of human moral development? How should one determine the truth about the good? How should one understand rights and duties of the human person? All these questions, questions Pope John Paul likes to raise, questions that he raised again and again as the Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow, questions that he raised in all of his philosophical seminars, questions that now he wants to raise as Pope, questions that he finds as already raised in the questions of the rich young man. What he wants to assert here is the validity of the questions and to assert, very contrary to some of the directives of our age, that the church offers an answer and that one of the primary duties of the church and its magisterium is to show us and to get us to look at Christ, because in looking at Christ, we will see the answers. Some of them can be also brought into the language of teaching, but many of them will only be finally understood when we turn in the language of prayer to Christ himself. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of our series of lectures that I think that there are a number of documents for which Pope John Paul II will be known a hundred years from now, that they will still be studied. I think this is one of them, very taught to splendor. But the other one to which I'd love to draw your attention is his document, Salvifici Doloris, on the Christian meaning of human suffering. And his idea is, is that philosophical theodicies, efforts of reasoning to try to show how to explain evil and suffering and privation and various forms of pain, that philosophical theodicies can do a certain good but often they come up short, and that the only real answer to the meaning of Christian suffering, in his judgment, is for the person suffering to look upon the face of the suffering crucified Christ, and that there one will see one who is God, 
who took on these sufferings voluntarily and who allows us to unite ourselves with those sufferings. And there alone we will find the meaning of suffering. It is like that, I think, in all of his writings. I see it in Salvifici Dolorous, but I also see it right here near the start of Veritatis Splendor. His next gambit in Veritatis Splendor at paragraph 31 is to quote a line that is probably one of the most famous lines in the Gospel of John. It comes from John 8.32. You will know the truth, and the truth you will make you free. This is his opening section and his opening um, uh, interest, namely to say that freedom doesn't mean just freedom from constraint, but freedom has a goal, freedom has a purpose. And the purpose of freedom is to allow ourselves to be molded and shaped and formed and brought to maturity in truth. Where is this truth? Well, for those who are skeptical, for the postmodernists and the deconstructivist, any talk of truth is a talk of power. This is why Pope Benedict in Deus Caritas est, as our German shepherd against those German wolves, is resistant to their hermeneutics of suspicion. Instead, what Benedict XVI and JP II like to do is to focus on the way in which the truth will set you free. For Benedict, when he does it, he is so mindful that the masters of suspicion like to try to paint the church in a corner, as if too strong a reaction to the suspicions that are whispered about would somehow prove the truth of the rumor, and that too weak a response to the suspicions will suggest the church has no answer. Hence the measured voice of Benedict in Deus Caritas est, saying, we must do the very same thing that John Paul II was doing, telling the truth about human sexuality, telling the truth about the nature of the social good and the social order, telling the very nature of the truth as something that comes from God. This done in a measured way, and then citing examples like examples of saints who have much suffered, this will be proof enough, this will be explanation. For John Paul II here at paragraph number 31, he is very convinced that one can see this by looking at the Gospels and looking at the way the church teaches. He refers us in this paragraph especially to a document from the Second Vatican Council that was very dear to him, in fact, which he helped to write, Dignitatis Humanae. It is a document which every one of us really needs to reread right now in the discussions about religious liberty and the many confusions that persist on that issue, I think that we will all find much clarity by review of Dignitatis Humanae with its tremendous focus on the need for religious liberty. Here in this particular part of Veritatis Splendor, what the Pope is busy noticing is how many cultures and how many peoples are so very much intent upon promoting human freedom and promoting human dignity. He is mindful here in paragraph 31 that there is a very legitimate demand on the part of many peoples for the right of self-determination, for the opportunity to use their own responsible freedom and to make use of their own judgment so as to make decisions for themselves. In the time of the Second Vatican Council, I think this was said not only about the populations of the West, I think it was said about the many peoples of the Third World who were emerging from colonial government. And he was so mindful of all that. And yet what he is writing and what Dignitatis Humanae is writing is this liberty, this freedom for which there is such an enormous attraction, 
cannot be merely license. It can't be merely a freedom from control. It can't be merely a freedom from something. It must be a freedom for. It must be a freedom for embracing the truth. Because as a Christian, when one accepts the notion that we are created and created with a certain nature that God has designed, designed, for instance, so that we respect the good of the other person and appreciate the dignity and defend the right to life and the right to innocence, made for love, not for any kind of love, but for the true sorts of love, for instance, in traditional marriage, when husbands and wives learn to love and to give to each other in love and to provide for a family in that love, rather than for sexual license or for sexual abandon, there is a truth about human nature and that the purpose of freedom is to give us the opportunity to come to know it, to come to embrace it, to come to adopt it for ourselves, precisely because this will mean the growth and maturity, the restoration of the image and likeness of God within us. This will be what it is to work toward that eternal life by doing the will of God, freely choosing to do so, and hence living up to the dignity in the second sense of the word, the moral dignity, to which we are summoned by having moral dignity in the first sense, simply by virtue of our nature. In paragraph 32, he turns to some of the concerns that he notices in contemporary culture about freedom, and in particular, the tendencies in modern culture to exalt freedom to make of it a virtual absolute. In fact, what he notes is the paradox namely, tremendous demands for freedom, practically, practically attend to idolize or to deify freedom and to suggest that whatever one freely chooses, perhaps as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, even though that gets quickly equivocated on when people decide that they need to hurt other people in the exaltation of their own freedom, how that needs to be resisted. And how he notices how those tremendous demands for freedom that can be excessive when it makes freedom an absolute are attended simultaneously by tens in the scientific world, in the social sciences as well as in the physical sciences, to doubt whether there is any such thing as freedom. Sometimes people will indeed argue the case that we are completely determined by our genes, or determined by our social circumstances, or determined by various psychological pressures? The answer, I think, is in between. Certainly there are determinations that are outside of our control. What genes we have are not ours to choose. There are psychological effects, which indeed do limit and constrain our freedom. There are various forms of social pressure. All of these things are to be admitted. And yet down deep, where the deepest freedom resides, where the true freedom resides, is in our ability to choose. And yet, for the Pope, it's not simply the ability to choose, but it's the ability to choose the true and the good. Once one comes to understand what the true and the good is about the human person is, whether by the direct revelation and looking at Christ, who reveals man to himself, whether it be by careful philosophical reflection on what it is that the natural law can show us about our true orientation and our true purpose, there are truths about our nature which must be respected and potentialities within us which must be developed. Hence, much of the elaborate paragraph 32 is focusing on the way in which we must learn to do this. The Pope begins to invoke the notion of conscience. It will get its own treatment 
in the second section of chapter 2, but here already at paragraph 32 we see some of it. Let me read a short section. To the affirmation, frequent in modern culture, that one has a duty to follow one's own conscience, something that he thinks is absolutely right, is unduly added the affirmation that one's moral judgment is true merely by the fact that it has its origin in the conscience. He's noticing the importance of freedom, of following one's conscience, the duty of doing so, but he very much disagrees with the notion that one should follow one's own conscience simply because it's one's own conscience. One needs to inform the conscience. One needs truly to educate it. He continues in paragraph 32. But in this way, the inescapable claims of truth disappear, yielding their place to a criterion of sincerity, authenticity, and being at peace with oneself, so much so that some have come to adopt a radically subjectivist conception of moral judgment. Some people think that what conscience and the obedience to conscience is about is being sincere and consistent with one's chosen principles. What John Paul II, like any number of great martyrs before him, realized is that it is a matter of sincerity and coherence and consistency, but with principles that one did not choose, with principles that come from God in the divine law, with principles that God has written into the natural law, precisely by the way in which he has made our nature. For John Paul II, the doubt about all that is a crisis of truth. It is a line which he uses here in Veritatis Splendor, but which he will develop at much greater length in Fides et Ratio, another one of his great encyclicals, because he thinks that once the confidence is shattered in the fact that there are universal truths about human moral goodness, about what is right and what is wrong, what is virtue and what is sin, once that confidence is lost, Inevitably, the notion of conscience will change, and it will become emptied of its truth, and it will instead be made into a creature merely of consistency and sincerity. Then, instead of letting conscience truly be a judge, according to standards that it did not create, what we will find is a notion of conscience that is simply subjectivist and relativist. This point about conscience will receive much deeper treatment in the next part, but what he is focusing on here is the good cholesterol sense of freedom as opposed to the bad cholesterol sense of freedom. Freedom from, especially from what constrains, is a good thing. Freedom for the truth is a much better thing. And to think that freedom is simply license is a very bad cholesterol sense of freedom. There's more to consider, and we'll do this in the next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.